Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Regardless of us sitting here and having this really civilized conversation and an enjoyable conversation about, about calories, this is, we are still a minority uh, um, in, 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 in where we are now. Mm. And I think denying that is not going to help. And so you need to continue speaking. I need to continue speaking. And we need to continue talking about the importance of food in and of itself rather than anything else and the quality of food and eating, eating, eating food that is good for us and good for the soul. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Do you calorie count? Well, you are not alone if you do. It's a multi-billion dollar industry for weight loss, nutrition labeling, and of course, mandated on food packaging in most countries. Calorie counts are really hard to miss. But... How accurate are they? Giles Yeo is on the podcast today. He's a geneticist with over 20 years experience dedicated to researching obesity and the brain control of food intake. He obtained his PhD from the University of Cambridge and assisted the pioneering research that uncovered key pathways in how the brain controls food intake. His current research focuses on understanding how these pathways differ from person to person and the influence of genetics in our relationship with food and eating habits. And he also moonlights as a science presenter for the BBC and you will no doubt recognize him from a string of programs. Now today's show is all about calorie counting and why calories don't count. It's a very provocative title and it's the title of his latest book, Why Calories Don't Count. Now I just want to preface this. This isn't a show demonizing calorie counting uh, in, in itself. I think calorie counting for certain people has been beneficial and there's no doubt a calorie deficit will induce weight loss in the short term. But if you've listened to the other obesity-related episodes, you'll know that short-term weight loss really isn't the goal because that as a long-term strategy is not effective. Uh, and when we're thinking about food, we should really be thinking about the health impacts rather than the symptom of reducing food energy intake as a means to creating weight loss. Um, so today, what we're going to be talking about is the inaccuracy of calorie measurement, our lack of understanding about the composition of food itself, the impact of individual differences. And this is where Giles's research really comes to play here, um, as well as the other determinants of weight control. We also have a lovely chat about the differences in calorie calculations and how we got here and how the current method of calculating calories that you'll find on cereal boxes or candy bars or whatever um, are based on 
measurements that haven't really changed in about 100 years, which is mind boggling. We also talk a bit about how we expend energy and how that really isn't taken into account. So things like basal metabolic rate, physical activity, and dietary thermogenesis. And we do discuss and explain what those terms are as well. Um, he also has a fantastic eight-part podcast series called Dals, Dr. Giles Yeo, Choose the Fat, and it's available to listen online wherever you get podcasts. And you can find the show notes for today's show, plus sign up to the Eat, Read, Listen newsletter at thedoctorskitchen.com. I think you're going to find this episode fascinating. Giles is a brilliant communicator and at the start we just bond over american football i'll let you listen to that but if you want to get straight to the meaty part of the podcast just forward the first 10 minutes onto the pod my first question actually was going to be about um whether you're whether you're bored in the nicest way possible whether you ever get bored of being asked about calories all the time. Do you ever find yourself like, oh, can't we just like move on to something else or something, you know, a lot, a lot wider or do, do you know what I mean? Do I, I mean, I I hope we all get bored with it soon, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I don't because I think there is so, we do worship the calorie, don't we? And I, I think as society, and this is the, the, the thing that's weird. So because so, because there's so many, um, things wrong well not wrong with it because as long as you use it correctly but so many misunderstandings about it i relish the opportunity and it's a terrible thing to say um in, in in order to correct some of the misconceptions i will be bored at some point not yet okay fine <laughs> fine because like i mean i get asked about it uh quite a bit and mm. well i mean I, I get asked the same questions over and over again which for 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 a lot of people, it's the first time they've heard someone talk about it in, you know, a way that makes sense to them in a way that's like easy and it's not, you know, restrictive, rigid and, and whatever. Um, but for me, it's like, I just wish there was a way, like a platform where everyone could just like be educated on it and everyone have the, the like similar opinions such that there's not this miscommunication. And I think that's what the book does very well because you're going through different diets, you go through the pros and cons. There's a ton of humor into that. Um, but before we go into the book, I want to mm. talk a bit about you and wh wh where you where you grew up because I learned a few things, and I'm I'm going to tell you a few things about about me as well, and I think we're going to have a, a, some shit, a, a bit of a bonding experience at the start here. Yo, <coughs> my brother from another mother. Yeah, let's do this. <laughs> so tell me where 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 did you grow up? So I this, this is a complicated story to, to to some degree. So my I popped out actually, so to speak, <laughs> and um, in, in in London because my dad is a um, my dad is a medic, well retired medic, but he was um, pinging around. He did his registrar training um, in endocrinology at uh, King's College London uh, in in the early seventies, which is when I was born, and that's why. So so you know my mum was, and I, so that's where I came out. But then we then moved back. So I. Then he went up to Newcastle. So I spent um, five years in Newcastle. And so there's this small Chinese boy from Singapore, uh, now with a full-on full, full -on Geordie accent yeah, because I yeah. learned how to speak. And then we moved back to Singapore. So I was then in Singapore for a few years um, until then I pinged around the world for a bit. I pinged to Boston, back to Singapore. And then we finally emigrated to um, San Francisco, uh -huh. which is where I did high school and I did my um, university. Um and it was then after that, then I came to Cambridge to do my PhD and stayed here. So that broadly speaking. So in terms of bringing up, my culture is probably um, Singaporean Chinese uh, for my early life. And then suddenly this huge cultural change into going to California, to San Francisco. And then from high school and university, which is a very uh, uh, formative moment, uh, part of your life, obviously. Yeah. That that was American. So it was Chinese Singaporean first, and probably where a lot of my food culture was embedded. Mm. Okay, and then my culture culture, the, the, the way I think uh, um, and stuff, was probably done in California. So that broadly speaking is me. That's that's fascinating. Um, I mean, like when you read the book, it, like your humor comes across very British, Thank if I'm you. honest. Like it's, it, it, it comes through in every single page and, you know, the memes that you talk about and stuff. But the, the stuff about um, you growing up in San Francisco was super interesting because mm. you said at the start you're a big NFL fan. Is that still the case? I am. Really? I am. So you're 49ers. 49ers, go! Woo! <laughs> They're not doing very well this year. No. <laughs> no. 
So I'm going to tell you something. So I'm a massive uh, NFL fan. Um, mm. Yeah. So Are I, you? Yeah. So I got into it when I was at school. One of my best friends uh, who now lives in Chicago. Uh, it was his dream to always like move to America. And he ended up doing that in his 20s. Um, he got me into NFL in a big way. He was a big Minnesota Vikings fan. Okay. And I went to Harvard um, just to go visit the campus with my parents. So we did this whole trip. We went to like Cape Cod and uh, some other parts in Boston and stuff. And I picked up a shirt and it was a 24 Ty Law. He was the the cornerback for the Patriots in the Mm. year that they won that. So I I picked up the shirt in that year. Uh, the whole issue with Bloodsoe and Tom Brady. Uh, Tom Brady came in the fourth uh, uh, pick, you know, uh, from the yeah. draft. People who people have no idea about NFL are like completely confused right now. But anyway, he was like, you know, the bottom of the rank. He came in, won the Super Bowl, became, you know, the poster child for NFL across the world, uh, like the the Michael Jordan of the NFL world, essentially. Yeah, um, the goat, as the they goat, call it. Yes. exactly, yes. the goat uh, of uh, American football. Uh, and I've been hooked on on uh, the Patriots every t- ever since. But interesting thing, I got really into it when I was at medical school. Um, mm. And John Taddy, that we were talking about earlier, he will, he will attest to this. I would go to the sports cafe every Sunday to watch the games on my own because no one else would go with me because no one understood. Oh, American man. Football. Yeah, I was there on my own. And I played fantasy football and I won the Sky Sports Fantasy Football League in the UK in 2024 uh, uh, 2004 so, so i what? got yeah so i got tickets to go to the super bowl when the patriots played uh the yeah the eagles in ja- i know i don't, for those Ruby, who are listening I, like d- listen listen we're here to talk about calories but no let's let move let's go let's uh, change subjects now this is what yeah yeah so this i mean no one no one knows this i've been spoken about this for for years and no one would be able to appreciate this is like essentially being given tickets to go to the world cup uh, watching your favorite team like whether that be brazil or something i mean tickets cost ridiculous sums of money like you know all the fancy people go you know and 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 rupee and it's like like 15 (laughs) grand or something or 10 grand for tickets and you see beyonce at halftime and it's just a crazy event yeah it was a crazy crazy event um and you know so i won the the thing in sky sports so i played every single week and uh i I remember like the 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 league table was announced live on sky sports and i remember like watching it with my baby sister and my dad my dad had no idea what was going on jumping up and down and uh yeah no the sky sports team sent me out there they gave me um like accommodation we went to the tailgate party it was like the best time of my life that like honestly and i was like second year medical school or something like that so like you know it was uh it was brilliant it was so fun <laughs> i thought you'd appreciate I, i'm speechless <laughs> I, I i'm speechless we we, we could end the end the conversation now see you later thanks for yeah, me. See you. yeah thanks <laughs> Okay, NFL aside, um, yes. let's uh, <laughs> uh, let's talk uh, about the book because uh, the the book has got quite a provocative title, right? And it I does. know right at the start of the book, you 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 tell people to hold their horses uh, and not at you. But despite that health warning, I reckon you've been atted by a number of people uh, since this book coming out, right? So 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 why don't we get to the crux of of the book? I know it's got a provocative title, but like, what 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 would you say? is the overarching theme of why calories don't count. Oh, I think there is, if, if I only had one sentence to say, it's very, very simple. We eat food and we don't eat calories. And I think that's the absolute critical basis of it. People think about calories. The calories are the units of energy that once you extract it, and, and they are equal once they're in you as a little poof of energy, all right? But that's not what we eat. We eat food and we can eat good food, bad food, healthy food, whatever it is. And then our body then works to, to, to take apart the food, digest and extract the calories. Mm. And so we need to concentrate on the food rather than the calories because the calories are just an output of the food. Um, and so what we eat influences how many calories we actually get, uh, get out of the food. That in essence is why calories don't actually count. They count. Just let me just before we count. Clearly, 200 calories of chips is twice the portion of 100 calories of chips. Mm -hmm. But so is 200 grams of chips 
twice the portion of 100 grams of chips. And no one is trying to compare 200 grams of chips to 200 grams of carrots. Mm. So it's not quite that extreme, but the analogy is there. That's why calories, I think, don't count. Okay, fine. Um, so we'll, we'll get to the nuance of the, the calories and how they might be um, differently absorbed and, and differently utilized depending on the person consuming them. But let's go down, seeing as you love talking about calories, as we've established at the start, and you're not bored of it yet. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's go down memory. I want to, I want to qualify it because I don't want to ask you the same kind of questions and you're like, oh, okay, fine. But, um, let's, uh, let, let's, let's go into the history of, of calories and, and where mm. it came from. Cause you do a beautiful job of going through, you know, how this came about, the the progression of the science since um, the, the well, pre-French Revolution, I think it was, um, with Antoine, Le- I'm probably going to butcher this name, but Antoine Lavoisier. Um, and, uh, beautiful. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. I know. I wish I could speak French, actually. It's just like a lovely, such a mellifluous sounding uh, uh, language. But anyway, uh, Antoine Lavoisier um, and, and, and how, we, how we got here to this point. So... <laughs> I mean, it's very, it, it is old. It is very, very old. And it's when people were trying to to understand almost transfer of matter from one to the other, you know, but what happens when you burn wood? Where mm. does the wood disappear to? How come it, is, it, it disappears? And this was the, the concept that, that Lavoisier was actually, was actually thinking about. And, and so he began to realize that when you actually transfer that matter doesn't disappear. He, he in effect, was, was uh, the first person. I don't want to say... Um, the only person, or I don't know if he even was the first person, but he certainly put into practice and, and enunciated the concept that when that matter doesn't just disappear out into in, into nowhere, but is just transferred. It may be transferred into heat. It may be transferred into other chemicals and other molecules. It tra- it's transferred from solid to, to, to gas, whatever it is. And he got this concept. And he also came up with, so uh, he was an amazing character, actually. Uh, before he was um, guillotined in, in, in the French Revolution. So he was a bit of a privileged um, a, a person. But he, for example, um, almost described the concept of the element, and he described oxygen, and he described, you know, hydrogen. He didn't call it exactly, exactly uh, those things, but he actually identified that earth, wind, and fire Okay, it was it's not just earth, wind, and fire, but it's actually there are elements involved. Mm. The point is, because he understood this concept of matter being transformed, he was the one that brought up the concept that you needed oxygen to burn something. This is this is pretty much it. And when you burn something, carbon, um, you know, wood or anything like that, you then produce this 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 concept of carbon dioxide. And so it was this concept that he was he was actually thinking about. And then because when you burnt something and then heat came off and energy came off, he then began to think, he never used the term calorie, mm. okay? But he did begin to give the concept of heat being given off when stuff was happening, mm-hmm. okay? Including, including he finally worked out and, and, and went to the situation that burning a piece of wood meant oxygen and giving off CO2. Mm-hmm. And he then equated that to when we ate, that the food was then being, burnt Burnt, oxidized Mm -hmm. okay and co2 given off and he equated the two things together that there were similar processes which which they are in many ways and that is in very many ways the birth of the calorie because he didn't realize that well wait a minute if heat is given off when you burn a piece of wood and if we eat a piece of meat or or vegetables or what have you um that we must be giving off that it must contain these calories, which mm. he didn't name, these calories as well. And that was really the birth of the concept mm. that when we actually ate food and burnt it, it was like burning, um, it was like burning a piece of, uh, of, of wood or burning a piece of fuel. And that's what we say, right? So we now we say, well, how much food did we eat? How much energy do you burn? Mm. And, and we still use the term. And that energy you burn term actually originally came from Antoine Lavoisier. That's that's fascinating. So so this this whole concept of transferring energy being applied to human beings like we're little furnaces for example and mm. that transfer energy not being I mean it has to go somewhere. So um that that was introduced by Antoine and then thereafter the science sort of progressed even further. So he he didn't come up with a calorie. I remember you saying that in the book as well. Where did the 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 calorie itself, where did that come from? So actually, where that then came from, um, 
fr- from the Germans, the Germans, <laughs> and, and did it come from the Germans and German uh, agriculture uh, actually? Because uh-huh. what then happened was it then quickly went into okay. There, there was a middle ground in which it involved some French people, <laughs> more French people, in which where was the calorie, uh, where did the whole concept of the calorie came from? And it was it became a measure of heat. Mm-hmm. Okay, And so people began to understand and begin to nail down how much, um, what a calorie actually um, actually meant. And mm-hmm. as you know, we now know that a, a calorie is a unit of energy that raises water, the temperature of water, a certain, a, a certain amount. And so when that then came... Um, to be, then people started thinking about well, how do we measure them, and then a, then this is when we went back into in, 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 into the French munitions manufacturer, okay, of all the things in the world, and they came up with the concept of the bomb calorimeter, yeah, okay, where we can then, in effect, you you sort of, I mean, they were using it to measure the energy output of a bomb, like seriously, literally, but. And, and and they invented it. But then people then, and these were then the German farmers, agricultural industry, begin to utilize it to measure how much energy there was in food rather than in bombs, hmm. in food. Why agriculture? In particular, domestic, uh, um, you know, cattle and what have you. Because farmers really care how much do they feed their animals, therefore how much milk and meat you actually get out the other side. And so they were the first people to really be concerned about exactly what they were feeding their animals mm. and therefore exactly what you output it. And they begin to use this bomb calorimeter to, to measure the total amount of energy of energy in food. So 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 you went from the whole concept, this this rather ephemeral, ethereal concept of heat being produced, and then slowly working off the of into a way of measuring it and then finally moving back into food again because of agriculture. And yeah. now because of agriculture, we now have this concept of calories being uh, being the energy content of of, of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, it sort of born out of com- the the commercial side of agriculture, right? So you're trying to transfer energy into your livestock, so you can plump them up, and you can figure out how in much as, in as efficient a way as possible. Yes. So for every a penny or pound, whatever drachma, whatever money it was at the time that, that was being put in, you were trying to be as efficient. It was a based out of need. How can I be as efficient as possible? What can I feed my animals, you know, to get the best meat and the best um, um, uh, uh, milk for the least possible money that Literally. I can put in, pretty much. Gotcha. Okay. And w- was was that the time where we figured out um, the differences between the energy in uh, the different macronutrients, so fats and carbs and protein? Or was that pre that was was that preceded? This so this was before because then what happened was we have to introduce uh, um, an, another person, and this was a guy. So now we are at just chronologically mm. for those of you who are. Um, we're now probably in the late 1800s, okay? So we're about 1880 or so. And 1880, uh, it was actually before that, 1870s, a guy named Wilbur Olin Atwater, okay, came, came, came to be. So he was a professor of chemistry um, at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And he um, was interested in the concept of the calorie. And so he visited, he visited, um, one of these agricultural stations. They had these agricultural stations in, in Germany where they were doing the science on a sabbatical, pretty much. Okay, and so he went, and he un- he he learned a couple of things. First of all, he understood the concept now of bomb calorimetry. He understood what they were trying to what they were trying to do. But these were these were the agricultural industry. He then went back to Connecticut, and um, and set up these agricultural stations as a concept in the United States. But his interest then was not what happened when the cow ate um, and whatever it is you, you, you fed the cow. But hang on a second. If we could do that for animals, surely we should be thinking about doing that for humans. Mm-hmm. And so then at water, between the years of 1880 and 1900, and I want everybody listening to this to consider this before you complain about your job <laughs> again. Because what Atwater then did between 1880 and 18... So so Atwater understood what I call the sweet corn phenomenon. Where, when you eat the sweet corn and you look you look in the loo the next day, you clearly haven't absorbed all the sweet corn. We understand this phenomenon. He understood this phenomenon. And so he decided, well, you know, how much how much of the of the energy are we absorbing? So he, in over 20 years, 
put lots of food into a bomb calorimeter to burn food and measure how much temperature came off. Lots of food, all mm-hmm. kinds of food, all the foods you can think of. But critically, he then fed these foods to human beings and then burnt their poop, all right? Like literally for 20 years, this is what he did. So now he understood how much energy went in the top end and how much energy went out the back end. And because he understood this, we now we now appreciate, he now appreciated, pardon me, how much energy we absorbed, okay? And so based on that, he then came up with his famous at-water factors. And, and these at-water factors we still use today. Yeah. And these are the nine calories for every gram of fat, four calories for every gram of carb, and four calories for every gram of protein. And he did this, in effect, over 20 years um, because of this burning and feeding and burning. Um, and he published it 1901, 1902. And so all of the calorie counts pretty much everywhere that we see are more than 120 years old based on Atwater's burning experiments. Wow. Okay. So w- with these burning experiments, just just to <laughs> hold on to that that image for, for just yes. a second here. So he would burn it in a in a controlled environment, I I guess, and collect the gases to estimate the energy. Is that is that what he would do? No, no, no. So a bomb calorimeter is a sealed container mm. um, where you put desiccate dried food ah. into or or poop. <laughs> okay, okay, in, in, into the container. And why dried? Because water, um, to at least to a, a human being, does not have any calorie content mm. now. If we are a nuclear power reactor, then water has, then we can break apart the, but we're not. Okay. So, so water has no calorie content to us. So if you dry off the water, just evaporate off the water and you then have the dried food that is there or poop. And then you put it into a sealed container that is pressurized mm-hmm. with pure oxygen. And the reason why you do that is so that everything burns. And then you, in effect, he puts a spark of electricity. Mm. This, by the way, is still the technology we yeah, use today. Yeah. It's just the machine just looks a bit better. And you spark and burn it. So, But around this sealed container, the sealed pressurized container, is a water jacket of known volume, X liters of water. And so you burn the food, and literally you have a thermometer in the water jacket, and you measure what the temperature is. And a calorie, a, a heat calorie, a small C calorie, is the amount of energy it takes to raise one milliliter of water, one degree Celsius at sea level. A food calorie, which is 1,000 little calories, is one kilocalorie, is the amount of energy it takes to raise one liter of water, one degree Celsius at sea level. Mm-hmm. And so that's how you measure it. You burn food, you have a known volume of water, you have a thermometer in, and you just measure what the temperature of the water raised, and that is how you calculate the total number of calories in a food. Right. And or poop. Or, or poop, yeah. And we'll, we'll put kilojoules to one side for now because i think i think you explained that really well in terms of the differences in the book but just to reiterate the point so these calorie measurements that were uh calculated by atwater in in around 1900 1902 1903 have not changed in over 100 years and this is still how calorie counting books and calorie counting apps all, all work is that is that fair to say? That, now, that's correct. Now, there is a little bit of wobble. So mm-hmm. in other words, now you're going to listen to this and you're going to go to your cupboard and, and begin to calculate. Yeah, yeah. You'll find a little bit of wobble. And the wobble comes primarily from the way people calculate how much protein there is in a specific uh, uh, item of food. So because of that wobble, there's a little bit of other things. But there is a little bit of wobble, but pretty much it's based on 449, right? Four. Yeah. And protein is uh, slightly different because there's different energy uh, consumption to break down certain types of protein, right? Regardless of w- regarding where it comes from. That happens later. So, 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 so the problem is what they actually have calculated, this is entirely based on the, on, on the burning experience, um, burning experiment. The wobble comes from the fact that, so fat and if, if I might, just, just to be boring slightly and nerdy for a second, fat and carbohydrates are, are made exclusively of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Exclusively. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's all in different configurations. The, the thing about protein that will be relevant in the metabolism era, uh, element of it as well, but this is just the digestion element, um, is that it also contains nitrogen. And nitrogen is very, un, it needs to be dealt with. And, and when we're actually dealing with protein, if we don't use it, and we have to and we have to move protein and transfer it and be, and make it become fat. For example, you need to get rid of the nitrogen, 
And so the nitrogen then comes out as we weed out, all right, pretty much um, when it comes out. But, but so dealing the way that most, the way that everybody pretty much actually calculates how much protein there is in a food is by estimating how much nitrogen there is in a food mm-hmm. and how much it actually comes out the other side. So this is the complexity. But all proteins, that 20 amino acids that make proteins, do not contain the same n- amount of nitrogen. And this is, part, this is part of the problem and the complexity of it, mm. which is why there's this wobble. So people never you, – you can empirically determine how much protein there is in a food, but that takes a lot of effort. So people estimate how much protein there is in a food. And so it's a little bit kumsi kumsa when 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 you're when you're there when you're there. Okay, fine. Mm. So so we've we've established the, the history of um, the the concept of energy transfer, the uh, measurement of said energy transfer using calorie, how we measure the calories in food, um, how the fact that these calculations have largely been unchanged for a long period of time. Where, uh, where, oh, before we go into the issues w- with the calories themselves, why don't we talk a bit about how we expend said energy when it's when we consume it? So, uh, you mentioned three areas in in the book. You have your your basal metabolic rate, your obviously your physical activity, and your dietary thermogenesis. And I think then we can get into the conversation about the the nuanced discussion around energy transfer and why that doesn't necessarily hold true considering we eat food rather than a, a jumbled up mix of calories and various flavors. So what we do with energy, we do, I mean, you, you've already said it very well, actually. So energy, so you've obviously, we eat food and we have, we burn the food and, and we burn the food primarily for three, in three different ways. Okay. And this is, it adds up to hundred percent, but obviously these things move. And the first and greatest amount is your basal metabolic rate. And this is what people generally in in common vernacular we call your metabolism my metabolism is fast it's slow and this takes around 70 percent pretty much 70 percent of the energy that we actually consume is spent on this and your basal metabolic rate is everything that keeps you alive Mm. your brain working your heart beating um um, breathing all of the things that we have to do even if we're lying down and doing nothing okay and actually it takes 70 percent of the of, of the energy you eat to do that the other 30%, you can in some way do something about. Okay, so your, your basal metabolic rate, interestingly, the 70%, we have almost zero effect on. Okay, mm. our body size and how much we exercise and how much muscle we have influences this. So we have we can do a little bit about it, but actually uh, the rate is the rate that, that, that it is. The other 30%, however, comes from two elements. It comes from physical activity, and this we all understand what it is, all right? The more you exercise, you you know, you can change the amount that, that you actually burn from there. And crucially, what we call diet-induced thermogenesis. And thermogenesis means heat production. And when we eat, um, it takes... When we eat, it takes energy to... It takes dough to make dough, okay? And so it takes energy to make energy. And this energy is when we eat, your body then gets into in, into a situation that we, it needs to metabolize the food, and that is diet-induced thermogenesis. And so that is heat that, act, that actually comes off as well. In terms of percentages, physical activity, we're probably talking around, of the 30% that's left, around 20% okay, mm-hmm. of your energy, roughly speaking. Clearly, that can shift if you're running the London Marathon, for example. Um, but then the other 10%, it's probably diet-induced thermogenesis um, as well. And thermogenesis in general, actually. So in other words, if you are um, non-shivering thermogenesis, which means that you're, you're obviously you're shivering. This is, mm-hmm. this is still physical, physical activity when you're doing. But then if you are just producing heat to try and keep yourself warm, that's part of thermogenesis, heat generation as well. Um, so diet and thermogenesis is about 10%. This is a slight uh, uh, sidebar here, but yeah, mm. um, people who are jumping into cold baths uh, for varying amounts of time, are they activating uh, a certain area that is going to increase their uh, their calorie um, their, their calorie expense in their calorie consumption? This is the theory. I don't know how. Uh, I don't know if a single cold jump is going to do this. There is a, there is a bit of our. We call it brown fat. Mm. Okay, that in, in in our body, it's not actually fat. So fat is energy storage. 
Um, brown fat is called brown because it's got so much mitochondria, which mm. is our energy, which is our energy supply uh, p- powerhouses in our in our body. It produces well, it produces energy, but in brown adipose tissue, brown fat, pardon me, same thing. But brown fat, it's not linked to producing um, um, energy for us. It's linked to just producing heat to actually mm. keep us warmer. And so the smaller mammals, mice and what have you, will have. A, a larger percentage of brown fat compared to normal fat. Um, babies will have a larger percentage of brown fat compared to to us who are in central heating and wear jumpers. But then if you, however, are, um, say, an Inuit in the past who actually live in an igloo, you, you, you're out, out in the middle of nowhere, well, then they would have a lot more brown fat as well to keep them warm. So the whole concept of jumping into a cold you, you you know icy icy water is to try and upregulate your brown fat you know uh, there are other things as well as far as i understand mm. but this is part of part, part of it to try and increase your energy um, expenditure yeah yeah i've really jumped in a cold bath a couple of times um and it's it's invigorating uh afterwards that's you, a good word for it yeah yeah <laughs> it's, a, it's a good word and you, you jump out and uh you feel amazing for about 10 15 minutes but every time i've done it I get mm. a cold like three days later and I can't tell why. I don't know whether it's because like my stress response just goes through the roof and then I... And then I, your immune system then plummets because of because the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it might be that from from that like high degree of stress and then I, I deplete my reserves for want of a better word and then I, I get a cold a few days later. So for me, it's never really worked and I, I just instead go for a run without my jumper every now and then and you know i mean creating a much as much heat anyway so uh yeah i don't know if you've ever jumped in a in a cold uh, no yet. well i tried once it was so unpleasant um <laughs> that i said do you know what if the whole concept is to try and and increase i like you what i do is my, okay my favorite exercise is 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 cycling mm. is if it's my thing is if I start cycling and I'm already warm, then I'm wearing too much clothes. Yeah. And so I always, and my wife thinks I'm crazy. But so when I start cycling, I go out where I'm okay. I'm not freezing cold. Clearly I'm not, I'm not a masochist, but I need to be slightly chilly. Okay. It needs to be slightly un- at wintertime, not in the summertime. It needs to be slightly uncomfortable almost when you start, because mm. by the time you're in, say 15, 20 minutes in and your, and your engine is up and running, I'm fully comfortable. Yeah. And so then is a situation where I'm in a cold, I'm now producing heat. And so that is my 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 ethos. My wife thinks I'm mad. She goes on a big jumper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, my, uh, my fiance is the same. She always looks at me when I'm about to do a run uh, outside and I'm just like, I've just got a hat on, a t-shirt, shorts, or yeah. whatever. I'm just about to go running. She's like, you are crazy. Like, what, what are yeah. you doing? Just put a jumper on. What are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? It's too cold. <laughs> I say you heat up pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. I really enjoy the story actually about you uh, uh, hill cycling uh, in your lycra. I, I hadn't come across the, was it mammal? Ma- middle-aged men mammal, in lycra? M-A-M-I-L. Middle-aged men in lycra. That's me. That, 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 that's me. <laughs> Does Jane cycle as well? Not in lycra. No. <laughs> <laughs> And she's got an e-bike. So oh, gonna... Listen, listen. Domestic bliss is hard won. I just want to put, point, point out to you. Yeah. And so, um, um, with, with with her with her e-bike, me, you 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 know you know in this masochistic yeah. thing, we you know maintain domestic bliss. So I can work myself stupid, and she can have a have a good time, and and our marriage stays in bliss. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. I actually have to admit there was a part of the book where I remember getting the chemistry lesson from you and it just brought back loads of memories from secondary medical school I know I know but I I did feel uh, vindicated when you were talking about how you promptly forgot a lot of this stuff as soon as you left the examination hall because that's like that was literally like my experience as well like I would I would revise so much I learned all these different pathways and an hour after the exam, it would just like just filter out of my sponge brain that couldn't hold on to the uh, <laughs> the juicy liquid of knowledge. <laughs> what a waste of what a waste of glucose! What a waste of ATP! I know, but anyway, I know. But the, the, uh, uh, it reminded me about how cells contain hundreds, if not thousands, of mitochondria, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. I I, I didn't actually grasp the magnitude of the mitochondrial density that you find in cells but that, i mean that that is the basis of of how we we break down uh, energy or, mm. or create energy right 
Mm, that's correct. Mm. That's correct. And and people think it's just one or two mitochondria. No, it's actually depending on what you're talking about, particularly in your muscles. We're mm. actually talking hundreds, thousands of copies of, of, of mitochondria. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, you mentioned uh, basal metabolic rate uh, here mm. being the, the largest uh, way in which we expend calories. So to, let's talk about that relationship to size, because I think people, um, everyone's everyone's heard that term. I've got a slow metabolism, or you know, I'm, I'm big boned, or, or whatever. Um, but w- what is the relationship to size and and your metabolic, your basal metabolic rate in particular? So you're absolutely right. A lot of how many times have you heard it? Right? Oh no, I am larger because I have a slower metabolism, or, or what have you, or I'm smaller, so I have a higher metabolic rate. And this is just not true so the Mm. biggest the biggest determination of your basal metabolic rate is your size i mean specifically it's actually depending what part of your body you're talking about if you have more muscle you have a higher basal metabolic rate if you have the fat is less uh, metabolically active than muscle but your total body body weight so the larger you are the higher your metabolic rate the analogy will be that while if you look at a mini mini okay like a old school mini cooper and it zips around you and think oh look at it it's 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 pinging around whereas if you look at a big suv it kind of it kind of moves about what what looks like slowly but at the end of the day the big suv will always use more um um, fuel than the small tiny car Mm -hmm. and the same is true for 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 body sizes for us so the bigger we are the more fuel we use even though we appear to be slow and lumbery and but whereas the skinny wiry person you know looks like you know really energetic he'll always use less energy than Mm. than than, than the larger person okay so we we have this would you you say it's like a non-linear relationship to size our basal metabolic rate it is non-linear. So when and when we mean non-linear, we mean that if you are twice the weight of someone, you don't have a metabolic rate that's twice as fast as someone else. Mm. And the, how you calculate that is actually relatively complex, and I go into it. But it's it's not linear. So 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 it's not. Is it geometric? I don't know. I forgot my maths. I, I don't know what what exactly it is. But it's not. It's related. It's definitely directly related. Mm-hmm. But it's not. Uh, uh, twice for, for it's not for, proportional for, uh, to the size so if you it's if not you're pro- twice it's proportional big, it's, that's right yeah, yeah that's right it's proportional to the size but it's not it's not like twice the size twice the twice the metabolic rate yeah great okay great so we, we've established all these uh facts about uh, calories how we burn calories let's talk about um a bit about why the calorie theory just doesn't hold up uh today so w- what are the other nuances within food itself that uh will differentiate what will will um what's the word i'm looking for what will explain why the calorie count on the pack of food doesn't correspond to the energy that you consume or 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 utilize in that way okay so there are two stages to the way uh there are two stages to us getting the calories from the food because we eat food not calories um the first is digestion and we understand what digestion is. Mechanical digestion is where we chew and the washing machine sound that our stomach makes, peristalsis. Um, and then the long, huge chemical reaction, which is largely what digestion is, which then breaks down the macronutrients into sugars, fatty acids, and amino acids, which are the break- broken down portion of protein. Now, once this happens, it is absorbed into our blood. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's the digestion element. At water's burning experiment, took into account how much of the sugar, fat, and protein we finally absorb into our blood. So he, he, he got that done. The second part, however, is that because once we get sugar, fat, and carbs, sorry, sugar, fat, and protein, amino acids into our blood, that's not the end of the story. Mm. That is not our fuel. Sorry, that's not our energy. It continues to be fuel. So this sugar and fat is then transported to our organs that matter or cells that matter and are then metabolized into energy. Okay, so that, that, that is the critic, that's the crucial thing. And it's this stage that takes a lot of energy that Atwater didn't, couldn't take into account. Mm-hmm. Um, and this differs whether or not we're talking about a protein, whether or not we're talking about fat, or whether or not we're talking about sugar uh, or, 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 or carbs. And so we know, for example, that a calorie of protein makes you feel fuller than a calorie of fat, than a calorie of carb mm. in that order. 
And a large part of that is because of the amount of energy it takes our body to metabolize um, to metabolize each of these individual um, macronutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, so just to put some numbers on it, to put some some flesh on the bones. So for every one hundred calories of protein that you eat and 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 absorb, we our body is only ever able to use seventy calories, seven zero. So thirty percent of the protein calories we eat is used to sort out protein. Mm-hmm. In large part because they have to get rid of the nitrogen. Okay, so this is this is part of the issue. This yeah. is why it takes so much energy. So, if you actually look at the pa- calorie counts everywhere, the protein calories are thirty percent wrong. They're already out by by thirty percent before we even begin to discuss anything else. So that's the most um, extreme, I think, of the differences. How about carbs? Mm-hmm. Well, it depends if we're talking about the powdered white stuff which actually is very, very calorically available. Okay, it takes very little energy. 97% available. So for every 100 calories you eat, you need three calories to deal with the sugar. So 97%. Whereas if you have wholemeal bread, you stuff with fiber in it, then it's about 10, it takes 10% of energy. So for every 100 calories, you need 10 calories to deal with a slice of wholemeal bread. Fat is... Very efficient. And so Atwater was correct with his calculations for fat. Fat is fat, and it is nearly 100% available when you eat it. It takes, near, it takes next to no energy to deal, to deal with fat. And so there we go. Th- those are, and, and those differences in numbers come from the metabolism because Atwater has already taken care of it in the digestion element mm-hmm. um, of it. So in total, I would probably say the calorie counts on all the foods are probably out by about 10 15%, depending how much protein and fiber there are actually in the food. Okay, fine. So but that's not the end of the story, is it? Because otherwise mm. your book would be called Why Calories Don't Count, parentheses, as much. So so, so there's like the the, the um, uh, net meta- metabolizable energy yep. uh, calculation there is. But then also there's the actual food. So uh, when, I, when I was imagining a food when you were making that description, I thought of like... Um, uh, like a nut, so let's say an almond. Yeah. An almond has got a lot of fat. It's got protein. It's got carbohydrate. It's got it's got the mixture, as most foods do, in varying proportions. Mm. So when we look at uh, the almond, how does that calorie um, adjustment make? Uh, how, how do we make that calorie adjustment in an almond, con- considering the different proportions of macronutrients? Oh, okay. So that is not an easy question to answer, and I think I think in, and I think in many ways we need to do that for each food individually. Yeah. It's, so it will, for now, still always be predictions mm. because it is because obviously we can obviously take up the almond apart and say what percentage fat, protein, carb is in there, and sort of work out what the calorie counts are. But that doesn't tell you how they interact together. Yeah, and because how they interact together really, really influences. I'll give you a, a better example. Might actually be an orange, okay? So where for if, if you because you can obviously everyone knows what an orange is, and we know that when we squeeze an orange, we get orange juice, okay? So it's exactly the same food, except when you squeeze the orange juice, you get this pulp that's left, which we think well we can't digest anyway, and we drink the orange orange juice. The difference there is enormous, okay? It's exactly the same amount of calories we can absorb in the orange juice because it's mostly in the sugar and in the orange. But just by the fact of us eating the orange, a number of other things happen, which means that the total calorie, the the, cal- the sugar calories in, in, in the orange are dealt with completely differently. We First of all, we're eating as opposed to just drinking the sugar, mm-hmm. right? Which is this in orange juice, which incidentally has as much sugar as there is in Coca-Cola yeah. or, or any other soda, okay? And, and natural sugar is not better than Coca-Cola sugar. It just isn't. So just by the fact that you have a whole orange there that you're eating and you're dealing with the fiber and you're eating it and your digestion system has worked on it, the way that the sugar is released First of all, takes a longer time rather than just 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 going in and spiking in your in in, in your blood. Um, but then the presence of the fiber, the way that our intestines work, uh, um, helping the microbiome as it as you know the bugs in our gut as it goes down, um, helping us be regular. So there's this whole you know other holistic element of it of eating the food 
that comes into play beyond purely the calorie. Because mm. if it's purely the calorie, then drinking the orange juice and eating the orange will have exactly the same effect. Yeah. And that's not the case. You feel fuller with an orange, you know, and everything is going to be better with the orange juice. I'm not, okay. Before people in the orange juice community, you know, start, start throwing stones at me, I'm not saying orange juice is bad for you, okay? I'm just saying that there is a substantive difference um, even though it's the same source food between eating the orange and drinking the juice. So I think that is what we need to really take into account yeah. um, beyond counting the calories in each of the individual macronutrients. Yeah, yeah. So within the um, foods, there are inaccuracies in how we calculate the calories. Yep. Within uh, the same foods, there are different preparations that we can go into in a second as well that will yep. determine the amount of energy that we absorb. And then that's before we actually get into the individual differences of the person consuming said food as well. Correct. Their current weight, uh, their proportion of uh, visceral fat, um, their genetics, something that I'm sure you can how, speak How of. active they are. How you know, active you know, all, they are. Of, all of the things, all yeah. of the things that you have to put in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the state of the microbiota as well. Um, yeah. which is a whole other field. And and I know I, I, I'm going to ask you to sort of postulate here because there's a lot of unknowns, I think, in terms of how we can assess people's microbiota and how that actually impacts um, the, the the extraction of energy from food as well. Um, but what, what, are we, what can we tell about um, someone's microbiota state today and how that impacts the energy uh, consumption from the same food so, so the same bowl of cereal can can the energy consumption from that be different from person to person based on their microbiota differences oh, oh un undoubtedly so so just just to get some nomenclature your microbiota is the population of bugs that live in our guts and there are as many bugs that live in our guts as there are cells in our body so 37 trillion um, um, in, in, in our in our guts I think um, many people would have heard about this. They heard about prebiotics and probiotics. Um, I'll give you my, my, my um, and people always ask me, you know, is, micro, is the microbiome, is it good science? Is it bad science? I think it's relatively new science. And I think yeah. that's part of it. We still are understanding more about it every single day. But what is clear, crystal clear, is that we need a healthy microbiome to be healthy. Okay. And, and what does a healthy microbiome mean? in its most simple terms, okay, as varied as possible. So we want a whole different variety of, of, of bugs in our, in our gut because with variety comes a better ability to deal with food, right? Because obviously if you need certain types of bugs to help you digest or metabolize certain elements of the food, well, then the more the kinds of bugs that you have, then well, then the more different types of food you can actually, you can actually deal with. The bugs play a role, a big role in our in our health, primarily actually in the immune system because, well, the bugs have to interact with our immune system and it actually plays a big role, big role in our, our, our immune system. So mm. that, that's what we definitely, you know, we need a healthy microbiome. We can debate whether or not by changing our microbiome, we can make someone fat or skinny mm. or, or smarter, uh, but we need it to be healthy. And the key thing about getting it healthy is to feed it as much fiber, as much different types of fiber as possible. Eat a rainbow. You know, people say eat a rainbow um, um, type of thing. And today's modern food environment, sadly, um, is lower in fiber than we should be eating by mm. quite a bit. Um, and if you actually go to a higher income country, such as here in the UK, such as in the United States, we have now, we, not me personally, the, the field has now shown that our microbiome, on average, is far less varied than if you go to a country where they are eating far more fiber. Mm. And when they're eating far more fiber, their microbiome are just more varied um, um, and healthier, in inverted commas. And that's where we are at the moment. We are in a moment where in the UK, we need to increase the variety of our um, microbiome, uh, the, the, the variety of the species of bugs in our microbiome, but we don't do, need to do this using expensive methods. We don't, okay, mm. of, of, of eating expensive pre-probiotics. We just need to eat more fiber, maybe more ferments, okay, more, more, more things like sauerkraut and things as well. But the most critical element of it is fiber as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. And I love the way that you paint the picture in, the, in, in your writing about the current state of the food environment as well. Um, 
I think the Marmot review really brought that into a lot of people's mm. attention as well with regards to food security and mm. how difficult it is to navigate a landscape where you are um, bombarded with ultra high processed food um, right. that is, you know, a lot cheaper uh, or there's a perception of it being a lot cheaper as well uh, compared to whole foods. Um depending on you know your, your time constraints, the education uh, level that you have to actually prepare the food from scratch, all these different elements. But one thing that really did stand out to me is um, how ultra high press, processed food creates less diet-induced thermogenesis. Um, I, I, I don't think I'd, I'd fully appreciated that before. Um, is it, what's the particular reason as to why that might be the case? There are probably a whole lot of other complex reasons, I'm sure, as well. But it's a big part of that um, comes down... Okay, so just once again, let's just be clear. Processed foods mm -hmm. are not necessarily bad for you because cooking is a process. Fermentation is a process. So we eat processed foods. Most of our foods we eat are processed in some way. Ultra-processed foods is processing of foods that we can't... is industrial processing of foods that we can't do in our kitchen or, or most restaurants, okay? So... so so it's the stuff that are pretty much most of the pre-packaged stuff that we buy is going to be ultra-processed because it's industrially processed. Now, the, and I'm not an ultra-processed food Nazi, okay? <laughs> I'm just, I'm not. Let me tell you what the problem with ultra-processed, most ultra-processed foods are. The, because they're ultra-processed, they are stripped of protein and or fiber, depending on what we're talking about. Right, uh, depending on what we're talking about, it's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Okay, the processing just removes protein and removes fiber, um, and it also removes flavor. So, as a result, you have to add back in flavor, which comes from the holy trinity of sugar, salt, and fat. So, ultra processed foods tend to be lower in protein and fiber, and therefore calorically very available, which means that our body uses very little energy to get the calories from ultra processed foods compared to a steak, compared to celery. Um, and typically higher in salt, sugar, and fat. And that is the reason why ultra-processed food, and we eat too much of it. In, yeah. in this country, UK, we get more than 50% of our calories from, of our energy from ultra-processed foods. Yeah. So it does make a big difference um, when we're talking about ultra-processed uh, foods, but primarily protein and fiber. That's yeah. lack thereof. Yeah, well. yeah. I think a lot of people like, We'll, we'll rag on the food industry, but um, you know, looking at it from a different perspective, they've been responsible for improving the food supply such that everyone has calories. They've made it super palatable. Um, they've made it, uh, you know, verging on, I would say, addictive. I mean, I, I can't keep junk food in my house because I will just continue to eat it. I mean, it's delicious, don't get me wrong. But like, you know, I have to make a concerted effort to make sure that I've got a good selection of other healthy foods in, in the house. Likewise, otherwise, likewise. Yeah. I don't, I, if you don't have, to my mind, if I don't have it in the house, then I won't exactly eat it just without thinking i mean i don't mind having it outside and, and and whatever you but in the house i try and keep it clear of, of of that stuff as well yeah yeah and i appreciate definitely the the way you describe the um uh the the need for some processing the way i describe it whenever anyone asks me about processed food is that you know all food exists on a spectrum on one side you have like raw food here which ideally you don't want to be eating complete 100 percent of your diet from some degree of processing is normal even if it is steaming that tender stem broccoli mm. that makes it go that beautiful beautiful vibrant green color you're making a lot of the nutrients a lot more bioavailable it's a lot more palatable digestible toasting the spices all that thing a little bit of oil in so these are all processes that make food part of the joy of, of 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 actually eating not what we're talking about here yeah yeah exactly yeah and and on that note i'm definitely going to be uh, cooking some of your uh, recipes in the back of the book the uh is it the black the black beef brisket the chinese black beef brisket? that sounds incredible <laughs> lots of garlic <laughs> lots of garlic yeah yeah 250 grams of garlic i have to read that yes. reread that i couldn't believe it 250 grams Try it and try it and report back. You won't taste the garlic. It'll just be so umami and okay. rich and delicious. Okay. Well, I'm a, I'm a garlic fiend. I mean, I put garlic in everything. You know, I come from an Indian background. We shove garlic. Uh, the, the holy trinity for us is garlic, chili, onion. 
And so everything is forms the basis for that. You know, all our curries, all the different, you know, uh, blends up and down the country. It's, it's amazing. For, for the Chinese, it's ginger, spring onion and garlic. Ah, there you go. There <laughs> That's you the go. Holy Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> so looking, looking into the future um, for you, I mean, mm. we always see you on our screens on, on BBC and obviously you've written a, a bunch of books now. What, 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 what are you most excited about um, uh, in, in, for the future, for your personal research, but also things that you might be writing about next? Um, from a personal research perspective, I mean, I study... Um, I study, I say I study obesity. I actually study body weight. Obesity just sits on one end of the spectrum. Um, but in particular, I study food intake. And I, I'm excited that over the next few years, two things, that we understand more about how humans control, how our human brains control our food intake mm. and everything about it, responding to stress or not, you know, um, um, being hungry or not. And this is, and, and not only me, by the way, the whole field is trying to is trying to understand. So that's the first bit, trying to understand more about how our simple human brains, you know, influence why I prefer eating an apple versus an orange or something along those lines. Um, but the second thing, which I think is very, very exciting, is due to the drive in genetic technologies that are that, that are now available. And also, more crucially, in the computing power that therefore allows us to interpret this genetic data and how we interact with the environment. I'm hoping that we get to a point. So a lot of genetic testing companies that are out there at the moment claim to be able to take your genes and sequence them and, and what have you and make mm. predictions of what you can, can or cannot do. Uh, I think many of them are overstating what they can, what they can do. But I think that in the near future, 10 to 15 years from now, we will get far better of being able to look at our genes and try and personalize some element of, of your diet, of mm -hmm. your nutrition, mm -hmm. or of your illness um, um, going forward. So I think that, that to, 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 my, to my mind for my research, is what we are really interested in. Within the what I want to do next from a broadcasting and nutrition and, and um, point of view, I still think that two things regardless of us sitting here and having this really civilized conversation and uh, an enjoyable conversation about, about calories, this is, we are still a minority uh, um, in, 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 in where we are now. Mm. And I think denying that is not going to help it. And so you need to continue speaking. I need to continue speaking. And we need to continue talking about the importance of food and of itself rather than anything else and the quality of food and eating, eating, eating food that is good for us and good for the soul. Mm. Um, we need to do this not by demonizing food, but by loving food. And I think anything we need this. And then the other side of things, which I need to keep pushing, is to destigmatize obesity, uh, um, destigmatize de the larger in our society, mm. and continue talking about weight stigma and about the fact that because of biological processes, that for many people, body weight is really not a choice. So that that's what I'm hoping to do um, go, going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely a, a, a noble mission, um, you know, for too long. Whether or not I succeed is another <laughs> question entirely, but that's that's the aim. No, I th I, I'm sure you will. I mean, like, certainly from the work that you've done on the BBC and your book writing and all the all the talks that I've, I've been to as well pre-pandemic, you know, you're definitely getting the message out. And I think a lot more, particularly even on social media, I've seen a lot more acceptance of how it is uh, wrong to assume that someone has a choice in obesity and how there are so many other factors at play. Um, and, you know, on the podcast, we, we try and educate people on just the magnitude of inputs that lead to someone being larger than another person that mm. are completely outside of their control as well. And I think, you know, further work on genomics like you were just mentioning, metabolomics, how we can actually uh, measure what's going on in our guts, modulate that with dietary interventions as well as other lifestyle interventions for the betterment of health primarily, and then weight control, you know, as a, as a side effect of really focusing on health um, and moving away from having further and further accurate measures of energy transfer and actually more towards, okay, what do I love eating? what is flavorful, what is culturally relevant, and how do we celebrate food as a means of communicating across uh, different Love countries. your food. And I think <laughs> if we learn to love our food rather than fear our food, I think we go to a, 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 
we'll go a long way into into helping get ourselves better and healthier definitely definitely Giles been a pleasure thank you so much I really enjoyed the chat uh, at the start as well uh, about American football I'm go not, 49ers I'm not sure everyone else will agree but <laughs> that was great man that was awesome thanks so much Rupi for having me To summarize our podcast today, we talked about the history of calorie counting and how we got to the measurements that have largely unchanged for about 100 years, the impact of individual differences and why the composition of food as well as the total energy intake is uh, just as important. And if you want to have a bit more uh, conversation around this, I highly recommend you listen to my conversation with Dr. Nick Fuller, who is an obesity researcher in, in Sydney. And we talk a lot about those other determinants of weight control and why it's not just about the calorie composition of your food. Um, I, I really think that's a great listen as well. And we're going to be doing a bit more on this, particularly looking at food addiction and the other determinants of whether somebody is uh, overweight or struggles with weight uh, and everything in between. So I think you're going to find those podcasts brilliant. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do give us a five-star review. Please share this with anyone who needs to listen to it and I will see you here next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.